Moses live once he got a little older. And six, God was going to use Moses to deliver Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Who delivers us from our slavery to sin? Our focus tonight will be on verses 1 to 15. I've decided not to go all the way down to 25 as originally planned. Tonight we'll be looking at Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. And this is the word of God. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took, him, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young woman, I'm sorry, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to you a nurse from the Hebrew women and to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion?" He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. There ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray together. Lord our God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this great ancient historical narrative of the way that you worked in history so long ago, and yet so meaningful for us today. Lord, we thank you that you speak to us in your word. You have spoken and we have heard. Lord, now we pray that through the preaching of your word, you will continue to speak to us. So please sanctify the words of the preacher. Please prepare the hearts of all of us who will hear by sending your Holy Spirit in a special way as we come to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the evil that Pharaoh is leveling on the people of Israel is increasing. It's going from bad to worse. He's concerned over the fact that the Hebrew people are multiplying exponentially no matter what he's tried to do so far. And he's afraid that this population is going to ally themselves with another nation and seek to overthrow the Egyptians. 
So far, he's tried oppression, uh, forcing them to slave labor and brutality. Uh, then he attempted to have the babies killed by midwives. Now he has decided that there's another way uh, to deal with this issue, and it's to take the baby boys and throw them into the River Nile. What horrible, what a horrible picture that is, to toss the baby boys into the Nile, a horrific scene that we shouldn't diminish the horror of what's going on here. Uh, in the midst of it, we see this narrative in our passage that I call strategic providence. Now, in a way, that's sort of redundant as God, our sovereign God, his providence is always strategic. God always has a plan that's unfolding, even in the details of history and the details of life, but sometimes it's more obvious than others. It's more obvious than others that his hand is involved, and that's what we see in our passage tonight. God is going to place an insider into the house of the Egyptians in order to achieve the exodus that he's planned quite some time ago. Uh, we learned that uh, the title itself kind of gives the story away that Israel will not stay in their burden of slavery. Uh, but God has this boy born to these parents, a Levite, Levite couple, Hebrew couple, Amram and Jochebed, they're devout to the Lord, and they have a special baby boy. Now we read that, and it says that they saw that he was special, and you can't help but think, well, what does that say about Miriam and Aaron? Weren't, that, weren't they special too? Certainly they were, but there was something about this boy. Not only was he specially marked by the providence of God, which I don't think they could have known at the time, but he was born during a time of terrible violence, and he was precious to the parents, and so they sought to spare him. Uh, they were fearless people. They didn't fear man, they feared God. I want you to jump ahead to Hebrews chapter 11, and you might want to keep a finger there because we'll return later, but Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. They trusted in God. They had an unusual faith and they entrusted their baby boy to the hands of their God. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So it was an act of faith. And it had to have been a great act of faith uh, because they're going to put their brand new little baby after just three months in this ark in the water. Now, the pressure must have been on them for this three months. The baby's growing older. Um, they had to think of what to do because the pressure was coming on. They had to have had anxious hearts that their baby was going to be snatched from them and thrown into the Nile in order to drown. But again, they were fearless. And so they come up with a plan. They come up with Moses' ark, maybe some of you have fallen for the trick question. How many animals did Moses put in his ark? And you have this moment where you're confusing Moses and Noah. Anybody ever fall for that? I have. 
The interesting thing is that the ark that they build, the same word is used for Noah's ark and it is for Moses' ark, but the difference is there are lots of animals in this giant ark. Here, there's going to be one little baby. That's the plan of Moses' parents. That's the plan of Moses' parents. And you wonder what they were thinking. They must have been in tune, in close communion with God to come up with this extraordinary plan for this little baby. We can't know, but it's a seemingly crazy plan. It's a desperate move, and it's very risky. And so they build this little ark and cover it with pitch so it will float and not absorb the water and sink. Uh, we do spark an immediate connection with Noah's ark, the way that the people were preserved there for God's posterity, his people, and now we have that here for Moses. Uh, we come upon the story and we find out that there are a number of just so happens in the narrative. It just so happens. When they place the baby in the water, uh, we see that Miriam, his sister, is nearby to see what's going to happen. She may have been there also to protect him from any harm that might come. You wonder what she would do if a crocodile or a snake came along, you wonder what she would do if an Egyptian came along and discovered this baby. So Miriam just happens to be nearby. And then it just so happens that Pharaoh's daughter happens to be nearby, and she sees this ark and out of curiosity opens up the ark and discovers a crying baby. And she recognizes right away that this baby is one of the Hebrew children. And it's pointed that it says that she has pity. What a contrast to her wicked father who has no pity. No pity on the Israelites. Has his taskmasters to have no pity on the people. Has even the Hebrew foremen pressured under the taskmasters to suppress their pity even for their own people. And here there's this, this young lady who has pity on this little Hebrew baby. Well, it just so happens that Miriam has the nerve to approach Pharaoh's daughter of all people. And she offers her to offer, she approaches her to offer a, a, a nurse for the baby, a Hebrew woman that just happens to be Moses' own mother who's able to nurse. Do you see the hand of God's providence in here at all with all these just-so-happens? This is setting it up so that this Moses becomes a Hebrew Egyptian. There's a great irony there. He ends up, first of all, being raised in the truth, the oral tradition of God's people, the Jews. And so he knows what the truth is, and he knows who his people are. That's very important. He understands that. If you were listening when I read a number of times, it said, his people, his people. Moses was aware, even though he was going to be in the Egyptian household, as he was trained as a young child, he understood very well that he was a Hebrew, that these were his people, and that Yahweh was his God that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was his God, even in the midst of all these false gods. 
But there comes a point when he's weaned, and we don't know exactly how old he is, that he's finally brought to Pharaoh's household, and he's raised there in the royal family, raised as a prince of Egypt. Can't help but wonder what Pharaoh was thinking, because he certainly knew that this was one of the Hebrew children now. He's a child, he's not a little baby, but it's almost as if he must have seen him as this this puppy that his daughter brought home that he has to tolerate because he couldn't have been affectionate loving towards this Hebrew child it just doesn't fit the character of Pharaoh at all so in time we have Moses taken into this royal family in this whole situation we find out that Pharaoh's evil plan here in the case of Moses was not only overruled It was flipped over to the point where now Moses is being raised right under Pharaoh's nose. And he's being set up to be the deliverer that God, we might say, destined him to be. Now we know what happens later, but we don't discover in the narrative yet that he's the man. Moses grows up. Again, never losing sight of who he was or who his people were. But he comes along one day, interestingly enough, as royalty, putting himself among the slaves of his own, being his own people. And he sees this brutality of this one, this one Egyptian beating one of his Hebrew brothers. And he's sick and tired of the oppression. He's sick and tired of the brutality. And so... Uh, finally breaks the camel's back and he intervenes. He intervenes. He has righteous indignation. We have to credit Moses with that. He has a sense of justice. And what's being done to this Hebrew is unjust. So he's got that, that righteous indignation Maybe we've experienced some of that ourselves. Do you ever have that when you've seen a gross injustice where if somebody that you loved has been, has been mistreated or maybe abused and your, your visceral, your gut reaction is to get vengeance on that person, your indignation is right. But your fury is restrained, hopefully, not unleashed. In this case... Moses is rightfully indignant. He's furious, but he doesn't restrain himself, and he kills the Egyptian. And you can't help but think, what is he thinking? His unmeasured anger has led to some very serious missteps, even sin. That happens with us when we don't consult God, when we act knee-jerk reaction, very often we discover that our, our miss, our miss applying our righteous indignation leads to missteps and even sin. But you wonder, what, what was Moses thinking? A couple things that we observe. For one, he's a very bad strategist. Did he think that he was going to take on the Egyptians one by one? Because so far he's acting on his own. He, was he expecting a mass uprising of the people when they saw 
that he was going to do this heroic thing and the other people would follow? What a disappointment. First of all, he did it in secret. Secondly, there's no one else on board at this point. Bad strategy, not very organized. Then he buries the Hebrew in a shallow grave. And he's also made the mistake of forgetting about the one living witness that saw what he had done. He was, we might say, a misguided Messiah. He had a Messiah complex that he thought, at least at this point, that he was going to be the deliverer. Turn with me to Acts chapter 7, verse 24. Acts 7, 24. Stephen is preaching. Stephen preaches a very long and it was much longer than we read here in the passage, I'm sure. Very long sermon. It's almost entirely the Old Testament until he finally gets to Jesus Christ as the answer to all that the Hebrews, in this case here, that the Israelites needed to know. Acts chapter 7, verse 24. I'll pick up in verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And so Moses is found out. He goes to intervene between two Hebrew brothers, and they turn on him. And then he realizes that not only do the Hebrews know, but that the news undoubtedly got to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is angry and is going to go after him. Moses misunderstood his place at least at this point and at this time. At this point and at this time misguided Messiah. He was a noble believer. And so we have to give credit where credit's due. Now please jump back to Hebrews chapter 11 again. Verse 24 this time. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And we'll end there in Hebrews. So Moses had a degree of insight. He knew that there had to be a deliverer, But he was running ahead of God. 
He thought it was worth it. He knew it was worth it to lose everything for the sake of this deliverance. In fact, if you noticed, for the sake of Christ, which is a wonderful thing that the writer of Hebrews does. He's not afraid to point to the Christ of the Old Testament. Moses knew it was worth losing everything, being in the powerful, the most powerful government in the world, the rich government, having prestige there, he gave it all up. He was, in fact, the right guy, but he took the wrong approach, and his timing wasn't in God's timing. Ultimately, in his providence, it was, but, but Moses forcing the issue, which is always a bad approach. So again, the word gets out, and he has to flee. Now he's on the lamb. Pharaoh's on his tail. But none of this is going to thwart God's perfect plan. God's perfect plan is always much bigger than we expect or anticipate. It will always be accomplished, and he will always be glorified. He will deliver his people. God hears, hears the weeping of his people, and he sympathizes with them. At the end of this chapter, that's what we hear. Jump down to verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God is going to deliver his people. That's his plan, but he's going to do it his way. And one of the things that Moses needed to learn that it was going to be God who would deliver. And he was going to do it in his time. So Moses, Moses was destined to be the great deliverer. He himself had to learn how to be the leader of God's people, but he also needed to learn again that it was going to be the great Yahweh God that was ultimately going to deliver after all. It's interesting that we know very little about Moses' life until he begins his public ministry. When he begins his public ministry, we might say, uh, he becomes this deliverer. And it starts off so wrong-headed, but God is going to shape him. He's going to shape him as an individual, and he's going to prepare Israel for a far greater deliverance than Moses had in mind. Moses had a rebellion in mind. God had something much bigger, a spectacular deliverance of his people and destruction of God's enemies. Moses had to learn he's going to be prepared. We have a historical narrative here. It's not a parable. It's a true life story with great imagery of a much greater deliverer. See, Egypt was a great earthly kingdom, and it was a kingdom of darkness, and Pharaoh was its king representing the kingdom of darkness. But the true king of darkness is much greater than Pharaoh, Satan himself. 
And Israel may represent an earthly kingdom of God. And Moses is being primed for the deliverer, but there's still a greater kingdom with a far greater deliverer. And we'll see this imagery all throughout Exodus. Here just trace Jesus. Moses is a type of Christ spared for the day of deliverance. Last time we saw that that Pharaoh's plot was mimicked later by Herod's evil plot. His plot to kill the Christ child was overturned. Overturned. Turned on its head for greater deliverance. And God sent the one from from not some earthly kingdom, but from the heights of glorious heaven, the king of heaven himself, down to earth to be among those who are in slavery and bondage, not to slave drivers, but to sin and to death and the devil. And so you see this big picture going on here. The Son of God incarnate coming down to earth in his humility. And throughout the life of Christ, and there's a gap as well where we simply don't know a lot about Christ's childhood, but when he begins his public ministry, we see that conflict with the kingdom of darkness intensify immediately. And evil again and again is thwarted. Jesus' life is spared from the beginning and throughout his life. A couple of times it says, because it was not yet his time. But the design for the ultimate deliverance had to come through this Christ. And he had to learn obedience. He had to grow through suffering to prepare him. But in God's perfect timing, the ultimate deliverance would come in the perfect way. Not to kill the enemies, but to be killed. To accomplish that greater deliverance that none of us could ever imagine, and we still don't really understand just how great a deliverance we have in Christ, is the Christ had to die. And it would seem, wouldn't it, during that most horrific thing we know as the crucifixion, that evil somehow prevailed. And that the king of darkness somehow had his way, but we know better. Nothing can thwart God's plan. And the Christ goes to the cross and dies. And as our deliverer conquers those things that held us in terrible bondage, And the plan of eternity to redeem a people unto himself is fulfilled in Christ. And we know him as the perfect deliverer. And so it is in that strategic providence that Christ himself becomes our perfect deliverer. I want to leave you with something tonight. To help you lay down and sleep at peace at the end of this Lord's Day. So this strategic providence had, back in that day, to do with Moses and Israel and deliverance. In the bigger picture, it had to do with Jesus and the church and deliverance of sinners. But with this idea of strategic providence, for those who are in Christ, we can be sure 
that God has this perfect plan for us. And so we take that big picture and we make it very personal. And so for tonight, I just want to remind you that your life is in the hands of your sovereign God. And you are marked by his grace and in the care of his providence. And I don't want to stretch it too far, but if you're his child, you're a beautiful child. You're a special child in the eyes of God. And he loves you and he cares for you. And your life is filled with many providences, many blessings, providential blessings, many providential burdens and sorrows. We sang last week, I think it was the hymn, has the line, behind a frowning providence, there lies a smiling face. That's a comfort to every Christian. So this is very personal in a real way. He sent a deliverer for your sake. And he promised you, he promised you that he will bring you home. And for some of us, the road might be smoother than others. For some of us, it might become immensely difficult. But each one of us, if we're in Christ, can lie down at night and sleep in peace knowing that we're in the care of our Heavenly Father. Maybe your life is not filled with dangers, toils, and snares like John Newton's was. But whatever comes to pass in your life, you can sing from the depths of your heart, "'Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." Let's pray. Lord our God, we turn to you as the one true and living God sovereign over all things. And we know that nothing comes to pass except for by your good and perfect will. We see your sovereign hand all throughout Scripture. We saw it tonight in this wonderful narrative of the early life of your servant Moses. We see your sovereign hand, your perfect providence, perfectly displayed for us in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in order to win salvation and to set slaves to sin and death and the devil free. And we're so thankful for that. But Lord, you have granted for us that we can bring it home very personally. And we thank you that if Jesus is our Redeemer and our Savior, that we can truly trust you that whatever comes to pass in our life is a part of your perfect design, your strategic providence that always is ultimately for the good of your children. You love us so much, and yet we see it so little. But Lord, we pray that tonight we would have that impressed upon our hearts, that in Christ we might lay down and sleep in peace. And that as the days ahead come, that no matter what comes to pass, we know that we can trust in you. And we come to you in the name of our Savior Jesus, who is dead, but who now lives and reigns and rules forever.
comment. Our closing hymn is There is a Redeemer, and we'll please stand as we sing together. Now receive the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.